All right, welcome to the CNS Journal Club podcast. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be discussing the September 2020 issue of neurosurgery. Uh, topic is going to be uh, neurosurgical oncology. And our poll is going to be the impact of insulin-like growth factor index and the biologically effective dose on outcomes after stereotactic radiosurgery for acromegaly. It's a cohort study. And um, I'm happy to welcome today uh, the first author, Dr. Graffio. Um, who will be kindly discussing, you know, the uh, topic introducing us uh, to the issue. Dr. Graffio, would you like to introduce yourself to the uh, listeners? Yeah, of course. Um, so, hi, everyone. My name is Christopher Graffio. I'm one of the seventh-year neurosurgery residents at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. I'm currently in my infolded fellowship with uh, Dr. Mike Link and Dr. Jamie Van Gompel. And, uh, you know, the paper that we're going to discuss today in some detail is, um, you know, something I'm, I'm very proud of. And, you know, I, I guess I want to start by saying thank you to, to CNS and to neurosurgery for um, choosing to give this a little bit of a, you know, an extra platform today. This is something I worked on a great deal during my research year as um, a PGY-5 together with uh, Dr. Pollock. And, you know, it's a paper that's largely focused on new ways to model outcomes for stereotactic radiosurgery in the treatment of growth hormone secreting tumors or, you know, tumors that give patients acromegaly. And, you know, during my research year, I was predominantly working on, you know, biostatistics and epidemiology and trying to learn some somewhat more sophisticated techniques for the statistical side of modeling. And at the same time, um, I was fortunate enough to cross paths with uh, Professor John Hopewell from Oxford and his colleagues, uh, by way of Dr. Pollock introducing me to them, of course, and sort of their association with Ian Paddock and the International Stereotactic Radiosurgery Society. And I learned about this concept, the, the biologically effective dose. And we'll come back to that in a little bit, sort of to talk about, you know, what that means and why it's interesting. But um, we selected this sort of paired topics, the, the insulin-like growth factor index and the biologically effective dose, uh, because they really brought together two big interests for me, and they were both areas that we thought we could make some meaningful contributions to you know, the neurosurgical and radiosurgical literature in general, and in particular, this idea of trying to elevate the you know, evidence-based or you know, statistically motivated clinical research that's, that's going on in neurosurgery. Um, there's a couple different reasons for that. You know, it's a it's a it's a good model disease. You know, we have an it's rare, but there are enough patients with acromegaly who undergo stereotactic radiosurgery that you can do some meaningful analyses with them. Uh, you have defined endpoints that are easier to to track than say you know radiographic remission. You have you know more defined laboratory parameters you can study and uh, symptomatic improvement in the patients, of course. Um, and there's a good amount of literature out there, but what what exists is is relatively uh, sort of one note that it's a lot of simple uh, you know regressions and things like that. Looking at you know does IGF one as an unadjusted parameter predict or not predict um, you know whether or not someone's going to get a, a cure after radiosurgery in this particular disease model. And so it's and you know and I guess I'll add to that there's a little bit of controversy that you know it's a disease where different centers have reported, I don't want to say conflicting outcomes, but where a lot of the results, the sort of sum total of the data is somewhat equivocal, that, you know, we see some places say uh, this particular parameter is a good predictor, is not a good predictor, and so on. So what we set out to do is to to try and really put together a, 
as unconfounded a sample as possible and to study these two variables and whether or not they're you know good predictors of of outcome after radius surgery for uh, acromegaly and also you know can we use them to build more sophisticated models for what outcomes are going to look like in this disease process so i guess before we get into some of the nitty-gritty a couple definitions are worth talking about um, you know, so what what is insulin-like growth factor index, and how is that uh, distinguished from insulin-like growth factor one, which is the laboratory parameter that most people are familiar with? And the main important point there is that IGF one is um, the reference range is very variable depending on the manufacturer and depending on the age and the sex of the person who's being studied. So, you know, my normal IGF-1 at Mayo Clinic today is going to be different than it might be at NYU tomorrow. Um, and it's also going to be different than my mother's would be at, you know, either of those centers, you know, today or tomorrow. So there's, if you just pool a large number of IGF-1s, there's a a, a lot of vulnerability to confounding. And my hypothesis going into this, our hypothesis going into this, was that that accounts for a lot of why there have been equivocal results when you've looked at large multi-center studies that have pooled a lot of patients over time and just said, oh, does the IGF-1 unadjusted predict whether or not someone's going to do well or not? You're putting numbers together that don't necessarily line up in terms of where you would expect the threshold to be for that particular person. So the way to adjust for this is a, a relatively simple, you know, uh, mathematical transformation where for every person or every observation, you know, when you do their pre and their post treatment IGF ones, you divide their laboratory value um, by the upper limit of normal, and so that gives you a dimensionless parameter. Um, that's scaled to one. So someone who has a, an IGF-1 index that's one or lower would be within the reference range um, you know, for their age, for their sex, and for the test at the time that was used at that particular institution. And someone who's over one has, you know, they're hypersecreting either on medications or, or off them, kind of depending on the clinical context. Mm -hmm. So that's where the IGF-1 comes from. And this has been studied before. Uh, Dr. Pollock wrote another, a shorter series based again on the Mayo Clinic, um, you know, uh, cohort. I think it was in 2008 or so. And there are a small number of other studies. If you count ours and the preceding analysis of Dr. Pollock, there's five in total, but that really is just to say four cohorts because two of them, you know, capture about half of the same sample. And when you compare that to the number of studies out there and the number of patients out there who have been reported in large multicenter series, um, this is a tiny little fraction of the population. So we we thought this is something that was worth shining a little light on, bringing a little bit more attention to, testing in a more rigorous fashion in our patient population. Um, and the results that we we found are very compelling. So you know. The, the short version is if someone has an elevated IGF-1 index, it's a very good predictor that they are going to be higher risk of treatment failure, which is to say not achieving the, the outcome that we defined here as being, you know, the, the primary endpoint was an IGF-1 index of one or lower off medications. Um, and the reason for that was uh, to reduce the possible confounder of some people decide they don't want to stop their medications because they're they're nervous about becoming symptomatic or that's how their endocrinologist practices. So we took sort of the more rigorous interpretation uh, of that binary. So you had to be off meds and you had to have a normal lab study to be considered biochemically cured. 
And then we we did a little bit of um notice again statistical work to to look at for all the people with the 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 range of IGF1 indexes, indices that were measured, and that binary outcome of did they or did they not get this sort of rigor rigorously defined cure as an outcome, <clears throat> excuse me. Um what was the best threshold for predicting whether or not they would have a cure? And so we used um, what you'd call receiver operating characteristic curves and area under the curve analysis. And it, it's basically a way of balancing the sensitivity and the specificity against the test and trying to find the threshold that gives you the, the highest overall value of both test parameters. And that's where we, we came up with, we essentially reproduced uh, our preceding finding and a finding that's related to one of the, the other studies that reported this, that 2.25 is a very um, a strong predictor that if you're above that, you're very likely to fail radiosurgical treatment of acromegaly. And below that, um, you have a much better chance of, of achieving a biochemical cure. So that's, that's kind of the main take-home point number one for this paper. Um, and then the second thing that we looked at was this sort of unique, or I guess it's not unique, but um, I don't know, maybe esoteric is the right way to describe it, concept in, in sort of dosimetry in the radiosurgical literature called the bioeffect, biologically effective dose. And again, just to uh, talk a little bit about the definition to make sure everyone's on the same page about things. So um, there's a couple different, you know, radiosurgical parameters that are that are relevant to a conversation like this. So one of them um, is margin dose. And that's a simple prescription. It's the amount of energy you're delivering to a target or it's, you know, the actual physical quantity of a radiation. Um, and that's that's not adjusted for anything other than how much, you know, radioactive cobalt, how many particles make it out of the machine and into the target. And it's usually something that's, um, you know, the, the margin is what's used as the prescription dose. Those are um, interchangeable terms. Um, but the conceptual leap in terms of what's a margin dose and what's a biologically effective dose is that while you're undergoing treatment, most tumors are capable of mobilizing the intrinsic DNA repair mechanisms of a cell. And so the way that we think radiosurgery works is that it uh, induces a lot of double-stranded breaks in the DNA, and that that eventually leads to cell death and tumor treatment and so on. But if your tumor is capable of manipulating the intracellular machinery um, and do things like fix those double-stranded breaks, then that means the actual prescribed dose, the physical dose, the margin dose of what you were hoping to deliver to that tumor may not be what is actually um, taking place at the cellular level. And that is something that changes over time. And it's um, there's a really complicated set of differential equations that are involved in calculating the true biologically effective dose. The reason that this paper was possible when it was um, is that a set of approximation equations were published by Professor Hopewell and his colleagues uh, in June about you know two years ago before I started, right around when I started working on this. And those approximation equations let you get around doing a voxel by voxel partial differential equation for the whole thing, which is a big pain that takes a long time. Um, and is certainly impractical for application to practice kind of concept. So this was the that a good model existed to say, hey, let's estimate this and see, does it offer um, comparable or perhaps superior predictive value to the margin dose, which is well described in uh, the literature, you know, for growth hormones secreting uh, pituitary adenomas in particular and pituitary adenomas in general, you know, the more dose you give, the more likely you are to get a good response. That's, that's well described. 
Uh, and what we ended up finding was that when we looked at a variety of different adjusted models, that the biologically effective dose was a more reliable predictor of outcome than simple unadjusted margin dose or margin dose adjusted for common parameters, um, sex or tumor size or things like that. So now the caveat to all of this is it's um, the differences that we're talking about are relatively small. It does have some advantage and there is certainly a possibility that when this is scaled to a larger population that would that could look bigger or that could look smaller because we're talking about you know about 100 patient sample in this particular study. But we do think that this highlights an important area, both for further study and possibly for clinical optimization. So um, we're really excited about this. It's, you know, it's probably the most novel thing that I've I've been able to work on and, and report thus far in my career. And um, I probably talked too much at this point, but uh, hopefully that gives you guys a good summary kind of to get us started. <laughs> no, that was a tremendous summary, honestly. And, uh, you know, it gave me a lot of extra Site. So I hope everybody can appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, before we, you know, get into the questions, I want to introduce the other two panelists. Uh, we have Dr. Kusumano uh, with us as well as John. Uh, would you guys like to introduce yourself, starting off with Dr. Kusumano? Uh, thanks, Dr. Vega. Um, I'm a uh, neurosurgeon, skull-based surgeon here at the University of Toronto. I also do uh, gamma knife as well. And Dr. Yan? Um, hi there. My name's uh, Han Yan. I'm a, a fourth-year uh, neurosurgery resident, and I've actually also started uh, my PhD in uh, clinical epidemiology, which is why I was both impressed by the statistics uh, from this paper, but also uh, the novelty of some of the uh, new factors such as BED. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. Actually quite good. So, uh, Dr. Kusumano, go ahead, and uh, if you have any questions, uh, by all means, you know, we can get started. Great. Okay, thanks for asking me to be on this today. And uh, Chris, that was a great uh, explanation and congratulations on the uh, paper. And certainly give my regards to uh, your colleagues there at Mayo, like Dr. Pollock and Dr. Spinner, please. Um, just to touch a little bit more on the uh, biologically uh, effective dose. Um, and most of us are not familiar with it, certainly in neurosurgery, but. Um, I did look up some papers, and it looks like the original descriptions were to define fractionation uh, um, schedules for these patients. Um, when you look at the biological activity of repairing those DNA breaks, does that occur over minutes, seconds, days, weeks? Uh, like how, how quickly is it hypothesized that that happens? And um, it looks like there was a lot of collinearity with margin dose, and you ended up you ended up getting rid of some of the models. So, can you just comment a little bit more about those two things? Yeah, of course. And um, thank you for the kind words, uh, everyone. And um, I'll certainly pass along the the greetings to Dr. Pollock and Dr. Spinner. They'll be delighted to to hear of the tidings. I'm certain. Um, so you're absolutely right. The historical sort of origin of BED is, is looking at uh, fractionation schedules. And a lot of the literature that is sort of uh, the, the oldest data on this is looking less at efficacy and, and more at um, side effects and treatment, negative treatment outcomes, like how, how much dose can you give over a short period of time um, with new cobalt versus old cobalt 
And, you know, are you more likely to give, are you defeating the purpose of a fractionation scheme by giving doses too close together, for example? Um, or can you can you reasonably take a weekend off? You know, is there is there a reason to dose people on Saturday? Or is it just as effective to say, ah, we're not going to, you know, run the, the machine on the weekend, we can do Friday and then come back in on Monday and that's still safe. Um, in terms of the specific question of what's the time frame that matters, so we're we're working on um, some sort of more gritty data to try and answer that question in a, a human model like this. The the best answer that we have so far is that it's probably not meaningful less than an hour. When we look at where do the curves start to diverge in larger patient samples um, and across multiple disease types, you know, we've we've published this, and there's a follow-up paper looking at sort of complications and hypopituitarism that we're working on now. And then we've got parallel analyses and things like vestibular schwannoma and AVM. But when we look at the the big trends in things, less than an hour, and in some diseases, less than two hours doesn't seem to make a tremendous difference. Once you get into the one to two hour range, certainly for the pituitaries, and I, I suspect for a lot of the other diseases, the paths diverge quite a bit. And so if you're talking about treatments where you had you know one shot that was going to be a 20 minutes, 30 minutes versus a really conformal plan where you're going to be delivering you know, the same dose over an hour and a half, that's probably in the range where you're going to get enough of a difference that you are likely to see at least an increased probability of having a difference in clinical outcome down the road. Although I will say that the the most um, sort of important you know caveat or footnote to to all of this is that it's margin dose is such a good predictor of outcome that the degree to which this is really improving you know long term outcomes in in a benign process we don't know you know the extent of that like it may be the case that like yes this is statistically significant but is it definitely going to be clinically significant long term for thousands of patients we don't know but i i do think that the the results that we've reported at least say it's worth answering that question more rigorously and with a more robust data set and you know over a couple of different centers not just you know at our one institution and when i look at some of the other papers that are out there and i see kind of the ranges of treatment times that are reported in in diseases like this or large avm is another example where you know volume staging and time staging come into play we may see even more of an impact in terms of how spreading out a treatment in time may result in suboptimal treatment. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. We've looked at our we've looked at our data looking at dose rates for the vestibular schwannomas and we found that was an independent predictor, but we haven't looked yet at the uh, biologically effective dose. So that's it's some interesting findings. Did you do And that's a Sorry, I had did you do any analyses to see what proportion of the variance did BED add over just using margin dose? Um, so I don't have that quantified. The Before I forget, you, you brought up treatment dose rate, which I think is a really interesting point to compare to. And what I can say is that 
if you do these same models with margin dose and treatment dose rate, but not BED, you don't get the same degree of significance that you do with BED. So there is there are other contributions, and, and that makes sense. At least um, it's a bio plausible way to look at things because obviously a new source is going to be a higher treatment dose rate and it's going to be more radiation delivered over a shorter period of time. So that's a that's a really good shorthand for you know biological effective dose. And another parameter that we've looked at quite a bit um, in the AVM population and um, that we're starting to work on with the vestibular schwannomas is the number of isocenters, because I think that if you were kind of plotting things on a degree of sophistication, unadjusted margin dose is kind of at one end of the spectrum, and BED is another end of the spectrum. And in between there, we have things like, um, you know, treatment dose rate, and then um, number of isocenters, which is kind of a surrogate for what's the... Um, What's the complexity of the treatment plan? And so I, I think that each of those parameters introduces some more information um, and maybe a better predictor or a, a more a better model fit to the data, so to speak. Um, but I don't we, I don't think we really have a good understanding yet of the granularity of how much of the, the variance from BED is accounted for by treatment dose rate, for example, or by margin dose. We know that there's more, but I can't tell you how much more. Right. I think you need probably a bigger sample size. Yeah, so agreed. The other, the other factor in all this is tumor coverage. Um, so but I didn't see anything described in the paper of how you actually measured uh, tumor coverage and what proportion of the patients actually had, say, greater than a 98% uh, coverage of the tumor um, in terms of the prescription dose to the target volume. Uh, we have a, We have a practice where we insist every plan that gets approved has to have a minimum of 98% coverage. Did, did you calculate that in, in the patients and what, what uh, role did that play? So my understanding is that we, we follow a very similar protocol here and that um, the wait, so when you talk about 98% tumor coverage, are you, do you mean with the treatment plan at the margin dose, or do you mean with the plan at at any dose, or the so the prescribed uh, margin dose? So let's say it's fifty percent. Uh, uh, let's say it's twenty four gray at the fifty percent isodose line, and you you map out the target volume, you map out the actual tumor, and then you look at the prescription plan that's going to be at the marginal dose that you want to deliver the minimal effective dose, let's say 25, it sounds like it was 25 gray in your study, right? Correct. Um, so so if it's at the 50% isodose line, the hot spot in the middle will be 50 gray, 50. right? Yeah. So um, if you have a tumor, say two cubic centimeters in volume, what volume does that margin dose of 25 gray cover? Is it 50% of the tumor, 100% of the tumor? What exactly is it? So the other idea is like conformality index right. or selectivity indexes. Uh, so I, I don't have a quantified conformality index for, for this patient population for a few reasons. One of them is we've looked at sort of the inter reliability on that, at least within our center, and it hasn't been hasn't been 
the most reassuring. And we did look at the does is tumor size confounding the analysis, and that wasn't a significant predictor independent of of margin dose and BED. You know, after adjusting for those, um, I can't tell you the exact percentage threshold above which um, the volume of the the tumor got at least the margin dose of 25 gray. I know that um, in, so 75 of the 102 patients, it was, which is to say 74% of the population, um, the entire tumor, 100% of the tumor got 100% of the margin dose. The other um, you know, 27 patients had a small area of dose reduction adjusting uh, adjacent to the anterior visual pathway. What that, in terms of the total treatment volume, was that a reduction of greater than 2%? I would say in the vast majority of patients, no. Um, just from having reviewed a lot of the plans, I know that it's it's minor adjustments and it's always in sort of cavernous sinus disease that's abutting the optic nerve on, on one side. And when you think about the sort of whole tumor volume, I, I think that probably... 2%, maybe 5% is is what we're talking about for that subgroup of the sample. Um, but I don't have a, a specific number I can quote you at this point. It's it's something worth um, studying down the road, though. I completely agree. Yeah, because technically, you know, if you're not covering the whole tumor, uh, that portion of the tumor that isn't getting your desired dose, whether that's a BED or something else, um, that may fail the treatment and um, you know if you if you're doing surgery and you leave a small piece of functional tumor behind the patient still has acromegaly or Cushing's or whatever right of course on right yeah so that might be something that you want to look at in the future um, just one other point before um, the other people start uh, talking maybe is um, the idea of the IGF-1 index, and I congratulate you on doing that. I think that's important because there is a huge variability from lab to lab, as you mentioned, and uh, certainly over age and sex, and uh, and it's difficult. Um, the growth hormone values, though, seem to just uh, have been thrown out, um, and I think you might not want to do that all the time especially if you're looking at cure. Um, it is true that there's a lot of variability in growth hormone when they're not normal and in the absence of tumors. So even like whether you eat or not can raise your growth hormone, whether you were fasting uh, to do the growth hormone level. But here you're looking to see remission from disease. So if you look at like endocrine society, they have very specific criteria for suppressibility of the growth hormone. But if you get a spot growth hormone that's like 0 0.1, um, you know that that person is uh, suppressed. So um, did you look at those growth hormone values in the patients? Or um, I know there was a comment there that they're too prone to bias, but I think that's true at the high level. So they're not that valuable at the high level, but if they if the criterion that we're looking at is control of the tumor, actually a very low level is useful. Yeah, so um, I completely agree. Of course, it's a it's a valuable and interesting parameter that you know certainly is very clinically relevant to the management of these patients. Uh, there, we we did look at it and we collected the data to the best of our ability. There's a few reasons why we didn't integrate it into the.
interpreted data. Um, part of it is sort of the practicality of things that we you want to have a parameter for someone before treatment that's going to help guide um, counseling and follow up and treatment planning and all of that that is that is more likely to be a reliable predictor. And so, as you were saying, the growth hormones unreliability is more pronounced at the higher end of abnormality. So the the chances of it being unreliable are, are increased at the time point that we think is clinically the most important. Um, it also seems to be a little bit um, less accessible. You know, if you're if you're talking about scaling this to to centers, you know, around the world, the the facility with which people can can stress test and follow um, you know, growth hormones, um, both at the high end and the lower end, uh, it's a little bit more limited than, you know, I think IGF-1 is is a more universally acceptable or universally accessible lab test. And um, it also is a little bit more stable over time. So it's, you know, easier for a, an average provider, I think, to to rely on that and to use that for, you know, counseling and practice and all of that. With all of that said, it is certainly something that we think is is worth incorporating into clinical practice. Our endocrinologists here at Mayo Clinic absolutely use it. It's something that we check after surgery. It's something that's you know part of the routine lab panels for the people you know who are getting uh, follow up monitoring to see if their acromegaly has gone into remission. When we when we look over time at this particular patient sample, it's also a somewhat um, the number of people who have it at every time point is a little bit less complete than the IGF-1. So again, from a practicality perspective and thinking about trying to put together a patient or a paper with um, a clear, coherent message, we thought that we'd get the most bang for our buck focusing on the the point that we had the most data and the most reliable data, and that would be the most useful to the most other people. So um, I, I completely agree with you that it's it's something that is clinically useful and that is certainly relevant for future study. Um, but we decided to to focus our attention on what we thought was the sort of highest impact parameter and the parameter that we had the most robust data on. Great. Wow, thank you so much for that interesting discussion. Um, you know, Dr. Yen, do you have uh, maybe one or two more questions uh, for our speaker? Sure. Um, I have to say it's been fascinating listening to a, a skull-based surgeon, an aspiring skull-based surgeon discuss um, very detailed um, aspects of uh, acromegaly. Um, I'll try to ask more questions that look at the forest instead of the trees, I guess. <laughs> and um, so I, one question I have for you, uh, Dr. Grifeo, is uh, um, obviously with your analyses, um, we had to look at a lot of uh, different um, variables as uh, categorical data where you used a um, receiver operating curve to decide on thresholds. Uh, do you think in future practice, uh, we're, like, what's the best way that we should be measuring some of these uh, new things that you've mentioned, such as IGF uh, index and uh, the BED? Um, do you think that is it just for research or can it be also be applied clinically? That's a fantastic question, um, and thank you for asking it. And I, I would say the answer is both. So this is this is something that I would love to see. If this paper has has one impact, I would love for it to be that future studies of radiosurgery in in any disease, really, but particularly in pituitary adenoma, include 
the BED in terms of the dosimetry parameters recorded and IGF-1 if you're you're studying patients with acromegaly, because I think that's going to empower us to do the kind of larger sample multi-center research in a rigorous fashion that, that we need to do to ask the more the sophisticated questions that are gestured towards by this research, but not definitively answered. So there is research value to it. Um, I also do think that there is clinical uh, practicality as well. You know, so uh, this year I'm, I'm a skull-based fellow. Um, you know, when I I go to clinic with Dr. Van Gompel and we see someone with, uh, you know, a, a growth hormone secreting tumor that's going to be referred to, for radio surgery, I could certainly see myself um, calculating their IGF-1 index and using that to to discuss with them what's the likelihood of if they've recurred after surgery, they're going to um, have you know a beneficial impact from from getting radio surgery as the sort of adjuvant second line treatment. Um, and I, the the reason I, I'm sure you noticed we we did a lot of sort of parallel modeling in this, and that does obviously open you know uh, some vulnerability to. Um, you know, you look in enough places and you end up with accidental findings that are statistically positive. And that's why we do Bonferroni corrections and all of that sort of stuff in, in more typical um, hypothesis testing settings rather than, you know, sort of hypothesis generating settings, which is how I like to think about a, a lot of what we're doing here. Um, The reason that we did the parallel modeling in terms of reporting both, say, continuous and categorical variables is I, I think that the continuous variables are are useful for research purposes and the categorical variables are used, useful for practical purposes for, you know, clinically advising someone or just judging for yourself as a, as a provider, you know, as a, as a neurosurgeon, as a radiation oncologist, do you think that this is going to be a, a, an optimal patient for, for radio surgery? Um, does that help? Yeah, for sure. Very, very helpful. Um, I guess my next question is uh, that uh, with this study, obviously there are many exclusion criteria to try to um, uh, get rid of all the confounders and really try to find the actual uh, causation or association between the, the information. How do you, uh, what do you think of the external validity of the study? How do you think it can be applicable uh, to clinical practice? So that's another really great question, and I think it highlights an important distinction in terms of sort of research philosophy and, and how we wanted to approach these problems and present our results in a way that we hope is going to be useful for, you know, our colleagues at other centers and, um, you know, and clinical practitioners for that matter as well. So there's sort of three ideas that uh, come into play here. So we're talking about a rare disease. Um, and an uncommon treatment sequela. So sample size does matter. And that's why you see, you know, a lot of uh, papers where you have multiple centers, you know, pooling people together over very long study periods to try to accumulate the sample size to answer questions about, you know, uh, risk factors associated with, with rare events. And people do want practical data. So what I think you're kind of getting at is the sense that if you just take all of the people from your tertiary center and report them, that's a representative sample. And then someone else could say, okay, if I do this in my similar representative sample, maybe that will be you know, useful and illustrative. Um, but I think that that doesn't really account for sort of the third key principle here, which is confounding or bias, which which substantially influences both of those other ideas. And, and what I mean by that is that if you don't control for the confounders, 
it's really impossible to say, for example, is your sample representative or is it skewed in a way that, that wasn't observed? And to what extent is the, the sample at Mayo Clinic comparable to the sample in Toronto or the sample in New York or somewhere else? Um, and then, you know, when you drill down even further to the actual parameters, if you're not excluding the confounders or controlling for them in some meaningful fashion, then you're, the observed effect is very much called into question. And, you know, an issue that, um, you know, could be amplified for something like biochemical remission after radio surgery, which uh, occurs, you know, months to years down the road after treatment. So there's a lot of time in there where uh, those differences that you didn't account for could have an impact that's undetected. So all that is to say that, I mean, our, our stance going into this was we thought it was sort of a favorable exchange to give up a degree of statistical power or a degree of generalizability in exchange for substantially reducing our vulnerability to bias, um, you know, particularly when the patients we excluded are those who have, for example, a history of prior radiation to the same lesion or syndromic biology or something else that we would anticipate would really change how the tumor would behave in response to a, a standard treatment and someone who therefore would be, you know, counseled differently and treated differently. So, I think that the generalizability, it has to have the footnote of this is a very selected patient population, but that means that we have more confidence that the results are are accurate and that we can interpret them with some degree of this is a meaningful finding, um, as opposed to saying there's a lot of noise in here. It's a big sample, so it's definitely significant, but I don't know where my signal to noise ratio is. I think this is a this is a small signal that is, but I know that it's all signal. And I, I would rather work within those confines than, than with a lot of noise. Does that make sense? Yes, of course, that's great. Uh, I guess I have one last final question for both Dr. Cusimano and Dr. Graffeo is, um, as uh, skull-based surgeons, what is your experience with also doing radio surgery? And do you, you find that it enhances your practice, your knowledge? Um, what has your experience been like? Uh, Dr. Kusumata, did you want to speak first? Um, well, <clears throat> I think it, it, it complements it. I think, uh, I think uh, when I sort of mentor young people who want to consider skull-based surgery, I ask them to consider learning um, this technique as well and learning the principles because I think we should specialize in the disease process, and uh, we should offer our patients the best uh, the best tools to help them. And so, if that means doing a gamma knife uh, for a residual tumor in the cavernous sinus that that uh, they haven't uh, you know been cured of their disease for it, I think it behooves us to learn that technique. Similarly, for the uh, endocrinology part, I expect all my fellows to learn the endocrinology part as well, because even though we may not be giving the medications, they need to understand them. So uh, learning and doing the gamma knife, I think, is critical as neurosurgeons who are interested in skull-based surgery. And, and uh, I think from the patient perspective, they uh, value that their surgeon who knows them probably like no one else um, uh, is going to be involved in their treatment and is, and is showing continuity of care. So I think it's a natural progression, and I think cerebrovascular surgeons who are doing AVM should learn it. 
um, you know, just like, um, you know, I think people doing neuro-oncology should learn some molecular biology and understand those processes. So it's been tremendously helpful for me, for my patients, and uh, I think it's I, I think it's a way forward that I think we should almost expect people to learn that in a fellowship. Yeah, I, I know we're running short on time, but I'll just say quickly that I, I echo all of that and completely agree. Um, it's, I, I think, completely integral to skull-based practice to have an understanding of radiosurgery, to have it be one of the tools in your armamentarium, to understand when it's useful and how it's useful to be able to counsel patients on you know, expectations and outcomes and, and and to not view it as, you know, I'm the guy with the hammer, so we're going to treat this as a nail, but to say I'm a guy with the toolbox and this is one of the tools that's in it. And one of my favorite things about skull-based surgery is that you're dealing with complicated benign diseases. And so you're oftentimes treating patients longitudinally who may require multiple treatments and you're going to build a relationship with them over time. And you're essentially going to be their problem solver that you need to you know, from the first chess move you make in in a particular uh, treatment, think about what's my next step if this fails and what's my next step if that fails and how am I going to talk to this patient, you know, today and tomorrow and after surgery and a year from now and five years from now negotiating how all of these different tools fit together in trying to build a dynamic, you know, treatment plan for them. Now, and um, someone once described skull-based surgery to me as a, as a modular system for bone removal, and I think that that can kind of be scaled up, that in the same way that you think about skull-based surgery is you have these little windows in bone you open to try and reduce retraction and protect critical neurovascular structures and so on. Um, you know, radiosurgery is part of a modular system of treatments that can be applied to skull-based diseases, and it's it's one more uh, way to hopefully give a larger fraction of people um, a really good outcome. And I, I think it's it's critical to learn. And I, I also have to say, this is kind of a footnote, um, the research is excellent. And, you know, I, I obviously have a passion for this. And I think that within neurosurgery, we have a lot to be proud of with radiosurgery being, you know, guys like Dr. Pollock and uh, Dr. Kanziolka and Dr. Lunsford, you know, the, the Gamma Knife community, Dr. Sheehan, everyone has done a really, really good job trying to elevate the evidence base in neurosurgical research. And I think that it's, you know, they're kind of carrying the torch for the entire community and saying, what's the the gold standard for translational research in rare diseases where where we wish we could randomize, but we can't always. And, and how are we going to use the limitations of, of clinical practice to, to do better for the patients of the future? Wow, that's such a great answer, you know, and I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Well, uh, Thank you again for all of our participants. I want to thank again uh, Dr. Grafio, Dr. Kusano, and Dr. Yen uh, for this wonderful discussion. And you know, if you would like to claim CME, please complete the podcast quiz activity, uh, which can be found in the education catalog at cns.org. Um, again, thank you all, and that concludes uh, this uh, CNS podcast for September 2020. Thank you. Thank you so much.